Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You all may be seated. So we, uh, as Jerry mentioned last week, we are beginning a sermon series on the church. Uh, We are walking through uh, the study of of what it means to be a church. And last week, you all heard Jerry preach on uh, worship, how to worship and why we worship. And so if you look at our map here at Grace, which is to discover, belong, serve, and go. Uh, Last week was discover. And this week we jump into the belong piece of our map. And we will spend uh, this Sunday and next Sunday talking about this belong piece. And the reason that we are uh, separating the two is because uh, there are two instances in scripture that tell us about discipleship. One would be the church's role in discipleship, and the second would be the family's role in discipleship. And today, we will dive into uh, this scripture, looking at the family's role in discipleship. And so these roles are distinct. They are, in fact, different. And we must look at the history of kind of where we are and how we got here to where we are as the church Uh, It was in the early 1800s where something uh, began that was a part of the church and is still to this day a pillar of the church, and that's called Sunday school. Now, you all know Sunday school. Uh, Raise your hand if you are here and you uh, taught in Sunday school at some point. So a lot of people. Well, I must say, as we have here at Grace, our own version of Sunday school that's going on right now in the other room, is I thank you for the time that you all have spent teaching in Sunday school wherever you have. Your job has been invaluable to the lives of many children and to the lives of adults today, right? Who we sit here because of you uh, teaching us. So Sunday school began in the, around the early 1800s because of the Industrial Revolution. Parents began having to work six to seven days a week, and there was no time for any instruction in the home for parents. So the church saw this need, and they stepped in, and they began to provide a place to teach children God's word and what it meant. It was a great need that was met, and the church stepped in to do that, and it continued on. And so much so that, uh, that a part of that helped birth the idea of the public school system, which was in the mid-1800s. All of that began during that same century because there was a need for teaching children. Now, as I said a minute ago, Sunday school has become a staple of the church. But Sunday school, in its very nature, was never meant to be the totality of discipleship for kids. It never was. In the same way, 
one Sunday a week or one day a week where we come in here into worship is not the totality of discipleship for us adults who sit in this room. It can't be. It's not meant to be. And what we're going to see is we're going to glean some truths about discipleship from here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy uh, was written by Moses and does not span a, a long amount of time. As a matter of fact, uh, Deuteronomy is the end of the Torah. Moses is coming to the end of his life. The people of Israel have wandered in the desert for 40 years. 40 years. And they're right there on the brink of finally entering into the land known as Canaan, the promised land. Moses does not get to go in because of his disobedience. So Moses pins three speeches in the book of Deuteronomy to all of Israel as they are getting ready to move into this land. These are his final instructions. And all of them are based on this. Come back to the covenant. The word Deuteronomy means second covenant. That's what the word means. It is a call back to the covenant, not just come back to the laws that we see in uh, Exodus and Leviticus, not just that. Come back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was this. Abraham, I want you to keep this covenant. And if you don't keep your end of the covenant, then I will invoke a curse upon myself. Moses is saying, look back to that covenant. Look back to God's salvation from Egypt. You see, one of the, one punishment of the people of Israel was that because of their disobedience, that they would wander in the desert for 40 years. But not only that, anybody in the people of Israel who were 20 years old or older would not be allowed in. So those who were getting to the place to move into the promised land, the older generation who would have remembered what it was like in Egypt have died out. The ones who witnessed the 10 plagues, the ones who witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, they're not there anymore. So Moses is saying, you must come back to the covenant that was given to your parents and your grandparents must return back to this covenant so that you can share with the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. That's the principal theme of Deuteronomy. It's his final instruction. You see, the truth of discipleship and the weight of it falls on us, the parents. It falls on us and grandparents. And we'll talk specifically about that in a minute. The idea of discipling your kids may be overwhelming to you. It may seem like a really high task. Some of you are just trying to get through the day, right? I know, I know there, are, there is a couple in our life group who, uh, who had just had a newborn baby a while back and I was texting uh, Dylan yesterday and asked him how he was, and he said, I'm great. I'm just really tired. Right? We've been there. We know. Discipling our kids is a very high calling. It is overwhelming. 
It is a great need. You see, discipleship is not meant for just pastors and life group leaders. Discipleship is the call for all believers. If you are sitting in this room, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Whether or not you are married, or whether or not you have kids, you are called to discipleship. That's what we are called to. Discipling children, though, is the call of the parents. Discipling children is the call for parents. We as a church aim to equip you the best way that we possibly can. Before we dive into the how to disciple your kids and the, and the quick tips to make you successful at, at discipling your kids, we must start with us first. The first truth we see from Deuteronomy chapter six is this, love God with all you are. Love God with all you are. So before we dive into parenting, we must first deal with the parent. And this truth, honestly, uh, this little piece here is not only reserved for parents. If you are in this room, it is for you. If you were watching on Facebook Live, then this is for you. To love God with all that you are. He says this in verses four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see, this section of scripture is called the Shema. It's called the Shema. Shema means to hear, but not just hear like you're hearing me speak right now. This particular Hebrew word emphasizes obedience. So if you hear these words and you disobey them, then you never heard them in the first place. No, it demands obedience. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is establishing who God is. This is not a random occurrence. He's been doing this for several chapters, as a matter of fact. In Deuteronomy chapter four, just a couple chapters before, he's reminding everyone there, hey, I know that most of you all probably wouldn't remember what happened in Egypt, but let me tell you, because at this point, they are celebrating the Passover once a year. They are doing that at this point. So they've heard stories. They have an idea. And Moses is like, let me remind you one more time of who God is and how he showed himself to us there. He says in Deuteronomy 4, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other Now, why would he say this to them? Because they're a younger bunch of Israelites, they are, but they're about to move into a land that is full of other people. Other people who celebrate and worship other gods. Most of them are polytheistic in nature, meaning they they worship many gods, not just one. So Moses is saying, you're gonna run into these people. You're gonna be tempted to worship what they worship, but resolve now who God is to you because this is who he is. The Lord is our God and he is in fact one, one. There is only one, there is no other. And 40 years ago, he showed himself in Egypt and all of Egypt saw who he was. Remember who he is before you go in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
that phrase that he gives here is an abbreviation of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are in some ways an abbreviation to the 613 laws given. And this is the one-liner that's like, if you do this right, if you do this, love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, then the Ten Commandments take care of themselves. It says, love God with every aspect of who you are. Every part of you should love him fully. So what does this look like? I've used this example before in preaching before, but I will use it again. So I grew up going to Tennessee football games. And I loved Tennessee football. I still love Tennessee football. I did not miss a home game from the age of five to the age of 18. Not a single home game did I miss. I was at every game, rain, sleet, or snow, I was there. I would be prepared for it too. We had our routine every single Saturday. We would park in the same spot. We'd walk along the railroad tracks in downtown Knoxville. We'd jump over to Cumberland and get some food. We'd cut through the bookstore to get any last minute supplies. Like if we forgot our hat or we needed something else, we'd stop through there, there on campus. We'd come out the other side of the bookstore and, and it would be, uh, it would be the, the place where all of the uh, tailgating was happening. We'd just jump in, walk through it all, high five people we knew, high five people we didn't know. Like that's just what we did. And then we'd find our way to the stadium, get into the stadium, get us a nice hot dog with some Dijon mustard. I knew exactly what I wanted. Sit in our spot. The people around us who had season tickets as well, uh, we would get to know them. We would know their family's name. We just became best friends. We would cheer. We would get mad. We would do all the things. Now, if Tennessee won, then it put me on cloud nine. And I came into church that next day just ready to worship the Lord, amen? Because Tennessee loves, or Jesus loves Tennessee football. That's what I did. It made my whole weekend good. Now, if Tennessee lost, I'd be at the altar the next morning begging Jesus, why? It would wreck me. I would be so upset it would, it would wreck me. And I didn't think it was a problem until I got married. Y'all laugh. My wife's sitting in here. She ain't laughing. All right. So, so it was, I want to say it was about three-ish years ago. She'll probably tell me I'm wrong. Three-ish years ago, um, we were getting ready to eat dinner on a Saturday night. Tennessee was playing. Um, uh, and of course it was on the TV and uh, we had dinner and we were getting ready to eat dinner at the dinner table, right? Come to the dinner table, we're gonna eat. Now, the game, you know, the game's on. So I just muted the TV and, uh, and I would like take a bite or two bites and then I'd like walk in to see what the score was. Then I'd come back and take it like, and there was not real family time happening right now. Like clearly, my head was in a whole nother world. Like y'all know what I'm talking about. It was not present. And then my wife was like, okay, legit, this is not healthy. Like it's not healthy. And so it was after that conversation with my wife that, I, that it finally clicked. And, and I'm ashamed to say that I was like almost 27 years old before I finally realized what this meant. I am willing to give up time with my wife and son at the dinner table 
time that one day that I wish I had back. To see what the score is of a football game and I couldn't even today tell you who they were playing. That's sad. And I praise God that my wife brought this to my attention in my face because I needed that. I loved Tennessee football with everything that I was. It affected me. Throughout the week, I'd be thinking about it. I'd be comparing stats. I'd be doing all these things, but willing to be with my family in order to do that. God is saying, I want you to love me with all that you are. That passion, that drive that you have for that one thing, that one thing that ultimately at the end of the day does not matter. I want you to take that and I want you to point it towards me because we live in a world that's full of distractions. It's full of ways that can pull us away from him. And he is saying, I want you to look to me. I want you to come to me, look to me first. Look to me first. I was forsaking good things for things that didn't matter. And if my son grows up and believes that I love Tennessee football more than I love God, then I have failed. I'm not doing it right. I'm to love God with all that I am. I'm to show him that I love God with all that I am. I'm to show my wife that I love God with all that I am. This section of the Shema does not end in Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, Jesus quotes this same one-liner twice in two different situations. If Jesus quotes anything from the Old Testament, it's probably important. If he quotes it twice, it's really important. Pharisees address him in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're probably thinking of all the 613 laws or even any of the 10 commandments, which one do you think is the greatest of all? And you know what he says? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That would have shocked them because he's quoting the Shema, not quoting the law. But that's what he says. A lawyer tries to trick him in Luke chapter 10 when he's going to explain the Good Samaritan. He says, how can I inherit eternal life to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you love God with only one aspect of your life, it is incomplete. Loving God partially leaves room for idolatry. Loving God partially leaves room for idolatry. And we live in an age where idols are around every corner that you could grab and hold on to and you not think that they're a big deal, but they are. Why was this important for the people of Israel? 
Because as I mentioned earlier, they were about to be exposed to people whom they've never met before, who worship differently, who, who have served different religions, who serve different gods, and it's gonna look appealing to the Israelites. Because the Israelite God, our God, Yahweh, made them wander the desert for 40 years, living off bread that, he, that fell from heaven. So these other gods who they may come and see may be more attractive to them. As you know, in the history of the Old Testament, it, it did happen. They fell away. They started worshiping other gods. They started sacrificing offerings to other gods or even golden images. He is saying, no, no. If you do not love God with all you are, then you leave room for idolatry to take hold. So I have a few questions for you to ponder on. The first one is this. Do I worship God privately like I worship him publicly? Do I worship God privately like I worship him publicly? And my second question is one that I would recommend that you actually ask your spouse or maybe if you have older kids, a good gut check question. If I asked my family what I love most, what would they say? If I asked my family what I love most, what would they say? I figured if I asked you this question, you'd probably tell me what I maybe wanted to hear. But if you ask your spouse or your kid, more likely to be brutally honest. I warn you, if you do, it's gonna hurt. But it's good. But it's good. So, we're to love God that all that we are. Secondly, we are to work out your faith in your household. Work out your faith in your household. So this is where we see uh, the roots of generational discipleship begin to play out. You first have to love God completely. Then he says in verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So you shall teach them diligently. The word teach diligently is all one word in Hebrew. It means to sharpen, to sharpen like a chisel to wood, sharpen. It's used nine times in scripture. It's not used a lot, but here it's used for our kids. So I have a picture up here. This is Vincent. Vincent works at Disney World, another thing that I love. All right, so I, I, I have to, I have to put these out in front of everybody to be full tra fully transparent. Tennessee football and Disney World, okay? So these are the things. And I will say this, at the 8 a.m. service, when I brought this up, I mentioned that Vincent works at Epcot. And there was another family that was in here who came to me afterward and said, actually, we think he works at Animal Kingdom. And then that's when I said, this is an idol for you, okay? So, 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 I'm good if you catch me not saying something true. I get that. But you also have a problem if you actually know who Vincent is. Okay, so, so Vincent works at Disney World. I don't know what park he works at. 
but he works at, at Disney World and he takes time and he, he carves these animals out of wood and they're, and they're beautiful. I have seen them. They are beautiful. And, and when he's working, you, you, can, you can watch him work. You can give suggestions. You can buy them. It's really, really awesome. Now, chiseling, he's, he's chiseling an elephant, by, by the way, if you, if you can't tell. And it's going to look amazing. Now, if you've ever tried to chisel wood or, or, or carve wood in any sort of way, you know that the first time that you do it, you're not going to be good at it. Like you won't be good at it. No, this is a skill that you develop over time. And it takes just that. It takes time. It takes precision. It takes concentration. It takes vision. It takes vision to see in your mind what you want this animal to look like before you get there, right? In the same way, this is how parenting is. You know what it takes? Concentration. It takes precision. It also takes time. It takes time. Your kids are not going to learn all the lessons of the world and all the meanings of how great God is and all the things in one sitting. It's going to take time. It also takes vision. It also takes vision. You have to look and see. God has put the vision in front of us in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the vision. Love God in that way. Love God with all you are. When we set that in front of us, then our parenting begins to change. If I'm pursuing that for the vision that God has in my life, then I should parent the way that God has put in front of me for them. I need my son, and not just need, biblically need, my son to know that God is number one for me. That is our job as parents. And you know what? There are days we mess up. There are days we don't do it right. And that's why it takes time. So you may be sitting here and you're like, okay, well, I want to start, but I don't know where to start. And that overwhelms me. I, yeah, I get it. You're, you're probably not going to be great at it at first. Guess what? I'm not. I have a four-year-old. When he, like tomorrow, it's going to be different, Right? Like, I know that. And the point is for you not to be perfect at it. The point is for you to be diligent in it. That's the point. That's our calling. That is what we are called to do. Teach them. When? When do we teach them? Verse 7. When you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. That's not, these things aren't literal. Like, these are the only times that you can talk about these things with your kids it is metaphorical to when you're on the go, when you're doing things, just as life happens. This is what Jesus did. Jesus taught the disciples to love God in everyday conversation. Jesus taught the disciples to love God in everyday conversation. He was teaching them on the go. He didn't sit down every night and say, all right, guys, grab the guitar or the piano, bring it in here. Everybody open open to here. We're gonna have a, a, an hour-long worship, worship. We got a set list. Your mom's gonna lead us in this song and... No, that's not what he did. And that's not what I'm asking you to do. Now, if you want to do family worship in your house, by all means, do it. 
But the call is to teach our kids on the go, every day. Find moments to do that. There are moments that are there. So maybe your first step in this is to pray and say, God, reveal to me these moments that I'm not seeing. Because they're there. He says here in verse eight and nine, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is a continuation of what he said in verse six. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now they're gonna be on your wrist. Now they're gonna be on your forehead between your eyes. Then they're gonna be on your doorposts and on your gates. You see, Pharisees in the New Testament took this extremely literal. They had these little boxes on their wrist that was called a phylactery. And these boxes would literally be tied to their wrists and the boxes opened and in them would be miniature versions of the law. So when they read this, they thought we're actually gonna bind the law to our wrists and we'll be doing exactly what God has called us to do. But this too, as in a lot of this, is not literal. You see, when God's word is pressed on your heart, then it should work its way out and will work its way out. That's what scripture says. When God's word is full within us, then if it's full, then it has to come out and it will. It'll work its way out how you speak to others. It'll work its way out in how you serve others. It will work its way out into your household. That's what he's saying. It will work its way out. And it's specific here of why he says doorposts. You see, this would be fresh on their mind as Moses just reminded them of Egypt and how once a year they are reminded of the Passover, the 10th plague of Egypt that occurred. The one that broke Pharaoh, the one that released the people of Israel from slavery. Once a year they celebrate this. Moses has, always, has already called them to look back to this So the idea of a doorpost is big right now for them. Why? Because during that 10th plague, the spirit of death was to come to kill the firstborn sons in every household, except if you killed a spotless lamb and painted its blood on your what? On your doorpost. And if you did that, then the spirit of death would pass over your house and salvation will be brought to your home. So by saying this would have triggered them. You see, writing these words on the doorposts of our homes is not for decoration, but for remembering salvation. Writing these words on the doorposts of our home is not for decoration, but remembering salvation. Moses, who was there. Moses, who saw his people tortured and beaten in slavery 
because of that, killed someone, ran away, married. God called him to come back in a very supernatural way. Came back, addressed Pharaoh 10 times. Pharaoh would not budge. God, who's clearly the author of all creation, shows his might over it. Delivers the people. Brings salvation to Israel. Not only gets them out of Egypt, but then when they come to the Red Sea, splits the Red Sea. Was protecting them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. You see, the end of God's salvation for the people of Israel wasn't only Egypt, it continued. And Moses is saying, many of you all won't remember that. Many of you all don't know what it was like to be beaten. Many of you don't know what it was like to be there. But let me remind you, let me remind you of the God of salvation. So let me speak now to everyone in this room. For Moses and the Israelites, it was Egypt. It was the Passover. It was God providing a way when there was no way. For us in this room, for us in this room, it is everything that the Passover foreshadowed in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything. The spotless lamb that would bring salvation to the Israelites. And as John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the what? The sins of the world. In the person of Jesus Moses had a truth about God to be passed down to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And so hear me when I say that we too have a truth to pass on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And that is the salvation that Jesus brought to us that didn't end with you all sitting in this room. It is still happening today. So when I look at my son Christian, I want him to know that I love God. I want him to know that Jesus is the way of salvation. That for him, it is Jesus that way. But I'm, I'm not only thinking about Christian, I'm thinking about Christian's children. And I'm thinking about Christian's grandchildren. Still my family line, what I do today matters in terms of the next generations that are to come. It doesn't stop with my kid. When he's 18 and moves out, then I'm done. No, it continues to go on. We have a message to share with the next generation about Jesus. And we are to do that. So a couple of pieces here, a couple of uh, just tidbit of application. If you're writing, you wanna write some of these things down. The first one is this, about family discipleship. It is not spiritual exploration. It's not spiritual exploration. It's not giving your kids the freedom to figure out what they want to learn on their own or figure out their own way and what they want to believe on their own. It is not that. God was pretty crystal clear on what he wanted these people to believe and do. And we are to hold the same standard for our kids. They're called doctrines for a reason because we are to indoctrinate them in God's word. The second Family discipleship is not using the word of God in order to get your way. 
is not using the word of God to get your way. If you are married in this room and if at any point, if you are a husband and your wife has looked at you and didn't want to do what you wanted and you used Ephesians chapter 5, that one verse that talks about submission without reading the rest of Ephesians chapter 5, you didn't do it right. Family discipleship is not a strategy to become an admired parent. It is not a strategy to become an admired parent. You all know, like, when you take your kids to a store or a restaurant and then they begin to act up or act like they uh, have no common sense. And, uh, and you're, you're less worried, most likely, about them disobeying as much as you are of they're just making you look bad now at this point, right? And on the reverse end of that, Family discipleship is not so that you can be admired as a great parent. Family discipleship is all about glorifying the name of God. And he is the one that we should be pursuing with this. Family discipleship is not always the most appealing path. It's also not the most appealing path. In today's world, it is definitely not the most appealing path. So some final points before you go. Number one is to model it. Model it. That's what Deuteronomy 6 starts with. Model it. Love the Lord your God with all you are. Every part of you. Start there. Parenting begins with modeling what it looks like to love God with all you are. Make time. Make time. Some of you all, your, your schedule is so busy that you don't have time for it. You don't make time for it. This is crucial. There are discipleship moments that you are to find. These are things that are just on the go. So what we've done uh, with uh, family ministry is we have combined the preschool, middle school, high school, and kids curriculum to where they're all from the same company. The reason that we did that was because of the take-home material that this material offers. It's fantastic. There's an app that you can download called the Parent Q app. And on that app, if you say that you're, you go to Grace Community Church and you, have, and you put your kids' names in, uh, in where they go, the curriculum for your kids' age group will pop up on that app and all the take-home stuff you need is right there at your fingertips. And it is, it is discipleship moments that are on the go, in the car. Um, if you have a preschooler, it's like cuddle time, things that you can do, prompts for prayers to pray. We've been doing it for a while. Christian has memorized, I wanna say, four or five scripture verses from this. It works. Also milestones, celebrate those. Baptism, graduation, kindergarten, all the things. Make a big deal. I also want to speak to grandparents in the room. If you're a grandparent in here, I want to speak to you. You play a pivotal role in the life of your grandkids. An immensely pivotal role. You all can take and help carry the burden of discipleship for your grandkids with your kids. 
to work alongside them, not to butt heads with them about certain things, to walk alongside. You have so much wisdom to offer that us as parents don't have yet. So use it. Be a part of it. Step in when you need to. Be that, that, that person that, that your kids can come to and say, what do I do? I know that for many of you, you're retired and you've run the race of work and, I, and thank you. I love that you're enjoying retirement. But the running the race of discipleship is not over. Because as Deuteronomy mentions multiple times that this is for the generation, the next generation, and then the following generation, and then the following generation, and you still have a part to play. Guys, discipleship is not easy. It's overwhelming. It's hard, but it's worth it. Let's pray. God, you are so good. I praise you for reminding us of how great you are in your word, how we are reminded of your salvation of the people of Israel, but also your salvation of all of us in this room through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. I pray that the first thing that we all do when we leave this place is a heart check. What do we love the most? I pray that you move in us and you begin to chisel away at the the idols that we may have that are in the way of glorifying you or in the way of discipling our kids. What I pray is as we move forward that all of us in here parents, grandparents, those who are single, kids who are in this room, youth, that you would help us see our need for you, but how great your message is for the world. God, help us as we go from here. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.